are listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey everybody, this is Mark Ballow from the Jersey Guys podcast. I'm here with my co-host Tom Coyne, as always, and today we've got special guest Peter Beckett from the band Player. Welcome, Peter. Hey, Tom and Mark. Happy to be here. Great, thank you. Basically what we wanted to do today is Tom and I wanted to basically talk about your whole career. Uh, not just Player, but you know, a little bit of everything. The stuff before Player, uh, the stuff after Player, the stuff in between. Uh, so hopefully that's okay. Well, hopefully I can remember it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, well, let's then let's test your memory right off the bat. We'll go right back to the very beginning before uh, before anything. Uh, I understand that you know you were born in Liverpool, England, and uh, nope. you uh, got to see the Beatles at the Cavern Club. I did twice. Yes. Wow. So, what was that kind of what made you want to uh, to be a musician? That was absolutely what made me. I was only fourteen, and I was too young to be there, but. Uh, had a friend who whose dad knew the bouncer and uh i've got another story i'll tell you that at the end but i just went back to liverpool just a couple of years ago but anyway um so he stuck us in first time uh i was only allowed to stay there like a minute and they whisked whisked us out you know but the beatles were on stage playing some other guy and they were all in the black leather with the hair combed forward and it was so freaking loud i can't even tell you because it, it's a brick place you know and it's just the most exciting thing I'd ever seen. It was jam packed, you know, and and uh, I just said, this is this is what I'm going to do. And pretty much went out and bought a guitar close after that, you know. Wow. That's that's pretty legendary stuff right there. That's for sure. Um, now, you in the 60s, I, I came across something and I just figured I'd spend a minute on it and ask you about it. Uh, the thoughts. What was that all about? That was one of my first, you know, that was my first kind of real band in liverpool i play with all these little bands but that was the band that actually th there was a girl singer in in liverpool called tiffany and she had a hit i can't remember what it was called but um she was from the uh, the liver birds that's what it was it was a four girl band and they had a hit in england and she broke off and she had a band called tiffany's dimensions a real band a pro band in liverpool the band broke up and I was sitting in a coffee bar uh, close to where all the music stuff was, close to the cabin in Liverpool. And this guy, Phil Boardman, comes up and he says, you know, are you a musician? And I said, yeah, I'm a rhythm guitarist. And he said, well, we're, we're putting this band together for Tiffany and we're looking for a singer, rhythm guitarist. Are you interested? And I'd only ever played in little dinky bands, you know. And uh, he said, y you're going to have to, like, put all your time in because we're we're going to be professional and play in Europe and this, that, and the other, you know. And I went down, I got the gig, and that was actually the start of my professional career. I was only like 16 and a half or something, 17. And uh, and the thoughts actually had quite a long run. We actually put out a, a single written by Ray Davies it's called All Night Stand, and Shel Tommy produced it down in London. And uh, 
it got a little bit of a play and you know some tv coverage and soon after that was the end of the thoughts <laughs> <laughs> well uh how long after that i i had read something that you had uh auditioned for badfinger yeah, that's jumping forward uh, quite a bit. I went back to Liverpool and then came, came back down to live in London again for a while. And it, that would be hard for me to put a, a year on. But Joey Molland and I, you know, we were kind of similar in Liverpool. I was in the Thoughts. He was in the Masterminds. And uh, we both played guitar and sang. He was a better guitarist than me, but I was a better singer than him, you know. <laughs> so, so we all moved down to London at one stage of the game. And... He was in a band called the Fruit Eating Burrs with one of the Walker brothers. And they, I think they were involved with Apple at the time. But uh, it, in that same period, uh, I, was, I was out having a drink and I got this phone call. I was called into the office and they said, there's this guy on the phone who wants to talk to you. And it's a strange story. This guy, he's saying, is this Peter Beckett? Well, we're looking for somebody who's out on a limb, somebody who's looking for something to belong to. And uh, we're forming this new band, you know. And he said, would you like to come down and try out for it? And it's at 10 o'clock tomorrow at this place in London, you know. And um, I went out that night and got drunk and ended up with some chick across town in London. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never even turned up for the audition. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and later I, I you know later Joey got the gig who was also for it and um, and you know in retrospect you know looking at what happened in that band I'm I'm really glad it never happened you know oh okay I'm sure you know the story um, I I know the story, you know the story? I'm I'm, uh, I'm old enough to know the story <laughs> there you go yeah, yeah. well just so you know. Mark, mm -hmm. two of those guys committed suicide Correct. because of yeah. they're in, in business, you know. So, yeah. you know, it was a, it was a good thing for me. Not oh, to go. Okay, sounds like. Well, let's move ahead a little bit to the early 1970s. Uh, I know you were involved in a band named Paladin, and I mean, for me, it was interesting because I just started reading an autobiography by uh, Glenn Hughes, the uh, bass player and singer uh, of Deep Purple fame. And mm -hmm. I, I found it interesting because, you know, early on in his book, he talks about the band Trapeze that he was in in the early 1970s. Yeah. And so I kind of, you know, go back and I listen to that. And it's in interesting for me to hear that stuff from musicians that you might know from something else. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the band Paladin, because that was something completely different than maybe what anybody would know Peter Beckett for, right? Well, there was I was out of work at the time in London, not doing too well. And um there was a band called, well, a guy called Terry Reed, and he was unbelievable. He was actually up, up for the job in Led Zeppelin as lead singer, wow. and it went to Robert Plant, of course. But Terry was like one of these guys. He had a three-piece band, him on guitar, Keith Webb on drums, Peter Solly, who ended up as a producer later on and got lots of hits. He was this incredible Hammond player, and they were just a three-piece, and they were just phenomenal. And I'd go to clubs in London and, like, you know, Jagger, McCartney, Tina Turner would all be in the audience to watch this kid. And he was a great looking kid. He had this big voice, you know. And uh, anyway, they ended up on one of the Rolling Stones tour of the US. Can't remember which one. And they supported uh, the Stones in America and broke up on the back end of that tour. So I'm sitting in the speakeasy, which was the, you know, the, the happening place in London at the time. And uh, this girl I knew, Val, she knew Keith Webb, who was the drummer. And 
she had been talking to him. She comes over to me and she says, come and talk to Keith. Keith, this is Pete. Pete, this is Keith. And Keith goes, so I hear you're an amazing bass player. Hmm. And I've never played bass in my life, you know. <laughs> and I said, the best. <laughs> and he says, well, in that case, you'll come up to Slough House with us tomorrow morning. They had this big manor house in the country, you know, 15th century, basically a castle in Gloucestershire, which is about two hours out of London. And sure enough, they came and picked me up, took me up there, and uh, it was this ridiculous place. I sat up all night, literally, because the band was coming in the next day, the other guys that they picked up. And uh, I, I, I had a bass, and I, I sat up in this room. It was like a loft up in the top of the practice room in a barn. I had a candle, <laughs> the lights, and I just sat and I played the bass all night, and I just got around the neck and figured out what I was doing just enough, you know. And then Peter Solly came in the next morning. The guys came in. They set all the stuff up. And they just started playing simple stuff. And, and uh, I got the job that day. <laughs> and I was in the band for, for, you know, a couple of years. We put out uh, two albums. And it became qu quite a uh, recognized and appreciated band in England. Kind of um, pro-jazz rock. Uh, interesting stuff. I don't yeah. know if you've ever heard it, but it... Rock and roll, a little, little bit of um, Santana stuff in the Afro-Cuban stuff. Yeah. Interesting stuff. And I actually became a pretty good bass player over the period, you know, and and, uh, and ended up being the singer, too, at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah, no, I did listen to a little bit of it on Spotify. And yeah, very much, like you said, it had that little jazzy, proggy sound yeah. to it. It was good fun, yeah. So now, after Paladin, you made the move to America, right? Pretty much, um as happened many times in my life, I was <laughs> out of work again and Paladin had just split up and I'm just hanging around London, you know, playing, jamming with different people. And I'd been writing songs with a guy called Steve Kipner, Australian guy who's since become a huge, you know, songwriter, producer here. And um, we were just friends. We'd go for a beer in the pub, you know, and we'd written a handful of songs. And he'd left and gone to America to join these other two songwriters in a band called Friends that was being put together, kind of like a mini supergroup. And six months later, I get this call and it's him. And he said, Michael Lloyd, who's a famous, you know, L.A. producer, was in the band and he left the band. And he said, Steve said to me, Michael's left. Do you want to come over to L.A. and be in the band? And um I didn't have much going on, you know, at the time. And I, I think like about a week later, I was on a jumbo jet coming over to L.A. Now, um, at what point did the band Sky Band become a thing? <laughs> have you seen that album cover? I, I have, and I actually have oh, it on okay. order. I, uh, oh, I had to get my myself my, a copy. <laughs> well, that's the most embarrassing thing in my life is I like to talk about the band, but not the, the album cover. <laughs> Well, I found the band very interesting because, you know, you just mentioned Steve Kipner, um, who yeah. was in that band with you, yeah. and also Lane Caudell, who yeah. I actually have an album of his from 1979, uh, Midnight yeah. Hunter. And uh, so I found it really interesting that, you know, Steve Kipner had a solo album in 79, which I know you did a little bit of work on yeah. with him. Yeah. And so yeah. there, I found it really interesting of the, the three guys there, you know, that created Sky or that were Sky Band. So can you talk a little bit about Sky Band? It was, um, it's, as I said, it, I came over to join that, but it was called Friends at the time. And it changed, there was an Australian guy in it, and there was um, 
Lane Cordell actually ended up replacing him. And so it became Lane, myself, and Steve. And we lived on Sunset Strip. They gave us this apartment, you know, for free. And they gave us a, a salary every month for just sitting around in the sun, basically, writing songs. And, you know, after England, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. It was crazy. <laughs> and I lost, you know, truthfully, I lost about 30 pounds and became very fit and suntanned and, you know, started to enjoy that life. So we did one album. Um, for RCA, and uh, they changed the name to Skyband. I think I came up with that name, and I really regretted it because they decided that we should look like a band from the skies. <laughs> so they made us all bleach our hair white, <laughs> and they put on these like warrior headdresses. And you've, you've seen the cover. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It I mean, all... it reminded me of like something you would have seen Cher wear. <laughs> Was, yeah, exactly. It's like Vegas, Vegas showgirls meets Conan the Barbarian. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and very embarrassing. But what that got us, we put the album out and we got a tour of England with the Alex, sensational Alex Harvey band, who were a real hard ass, you know, all male audience band. They were really a kick ass band. And they saw this these costumes on us and they thought, well, we're real theatrical. These guys look theatrical. Let's get them to uh, support us in, on our tour of England and Scotland. So we packed up our little cases and went off to uh, England and Scotland and got booed off pretty pretty much every night. <laughs> <laughs> we're like these little little surfer guys from L.A. And these guys were like knocking down walls on stage and doing all this stuff. It was crazy. But after a week of that, having bottles whiz past our heads, we we dumped the costumes and you know put t-shirts and jeans on it and just became a normal band and did our set and we were much more accepted <laughs> and we came, we came back after we did about a month and we got home to LA and the band split up yeah. that has to be one of the worst combinations of opening band and headlining well, band I've ever heard of in my life there you go you know what we went through <laughs> because the rhythm section of the Alex Harvey band ended oh, up going man. on to play with uh, Michael Shanker Oh, they were ridiculous. Yeah. They they were just ridiculous yeah, they were and heavy theatrical as yeah. hell. Yeah. They were very heavy. That's funny. Um, so now I guess at that point, uh, you kind of formed player. Was it shortly thereafter, or how did that all happen? A few years. Same kind of idea. Uh Lane left. It was Kipner and I and a guy called Reed Kaling from the grassroots. We really just sat around writing songs. I think uh the band at one stage was called Riff Raff, and we put one single out. Jukebox Saturday Night, I think it was called. And it wasn't bad, you know. And then we got somebody else in. Reed left and got J.C. Crowley in. And that's how the player thing started. I had met J.C. at a party in Hollywood. And everybody was dressed in white. That was the theme. And we were the only guys in jeans and T-shirts, you know. And we kind of walked towards each other and started talking. And, you know, I was fascinated because he was a country guy and he was from Texas. And he was fascinated because I was from Liverpool. And we decided to get together a few days later and just see, you know, if we could come up with something. Yeah. And so we we did. And we came up with a handful of things over a short period of time. And we started, you know, playing them around. Then Ron Moss came into the band. And uh, we had a little trio there. So we had the three-part harmonies. And uh, we played for a whole bunch of producers and Nobody was real interested. It's also, you know, you guys look good. You sound great, but don't hear a hit. And then we were introduced to Dennis Lambert and Brian Potter. And uh, we went into their office and we'd, we'd written Baby Come Back about a week before. 
and we put it into the mix. You know, we played our usual three songs and they just sat there and yeah, next. And then we played Baby Come Back and their mouths dropped and they just <laughs> looked at us and went, that could be a hit. And um, and that was really the start of everything right there. Yeah. Well, that obviously it was a hit, uh, no doubt. Um, talk about how, you know, basically you guys put the album out. And I mean, right off the bat, I guess within a few months, right there, you got a number one hit on your hands, right? Well, you know, it's funny. I was just talking to my wife about this a couple of days ago. We were rehearsing for, for whatever was going to happen in this little studio called Rats in Studio City in L.A. And strangely enough, Air Supply were in the next room and they had never had a hit yet. So we're all just practicing in this place. And we put the single out. Baby Come Back had come out a couple of weeks before. And uh, our manager comes running into the rehearsal and screams out, your single is number 80 on the Billboard charts. And that was the biggest day <laughs> for me. It was like, oh, my God, we're on Billboard. We're on Billboard. It was insane. And, um, you know, time went on, the weeks went on, and it started climbing the charts. So, you know, you're going to get used to it. You're watching it every week. So by the time it got to number one, it was great, but not as big a deal as the number 80 thing. <laughs> now, uh, what was it like? I mean, you were uh, out at that point opening for Boz Skaggs, right? And when No, the, uh... we, were out, well, we were out with Gito Vanelli. Oh, okay. We, we, we just had record had charted, you know, low. And so they put us on a tour. We did a, a few gigs with Gino Vanelli. And as the record started to go up the charts, they nabbed us and they said, okay, you're going on tour with Buzz Skaggs, Silk Degrees album. And so suddenly we're flung into these 30,000-seat arenas, which was like a whole new ball game for us. You know, we'd barely done, I don't know, 20 gigs. And um, it was really quite something. And it's funny how you get used to things. As those gigs went on, we got to the big, big places. And in the middle of that tour, at the beginning, nobody knew who we were. They, they heard rumbles, you know, it was polite clapping, you know, at the end of our set. And in the middle of the tour, Baby Come Back hit number one, and everything changed. It was like on the radio everywhere, all the time. And so when we did Baby Come Back, it was like standing ovation, you know, and we get to do a, an encore. And um, it was fantastic. That's that's wild to be uh, in an opening band, right? And then in a situation like that and have a number one hit in America. That's, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, you, you guys toured for the, the first album. You got the number one hit in your hands. And now yep. you come back and you have your second album, which is Danger Zone. And I know Tom wanted to talk a little bit about this because it's a personal favorite of his. Personal favorite. I, I've always uh, wanted to ask you a little bit about this record because in my opinion it's it's one of the great AOR albums of all time and I thought at, at for what it was when it was recorded it became a trendsetter for a, an established sound kind of a sound similar that the Doobie Brothers were doing at times some of your vocals on this record and if you could tell us a little about about some of the songs and then I'll have some questions about it because this is a real personal favorite album of mine well we uh we were approached by the record company, you know, RSO, Robert Stigwood, and um, they had clapped in the Bee Gees, you know, a whole bunch of big acts. And they said, we're going to put you on tour with Eric Clapton, the slow hand thing. And you're going to do a new album, but you're going to have to harden it up a little bit, a little less of the Blue Eyed Soul and uh, a little more of those Doobie Brothers, you know, to quote you. And um, that's what we did. We sat down and we tried to write a harder album. There are songs like Silver Lining and uh, Danger Zone itself. And um, 
we went off on that tour with Clapton and we didn't because we'd done that, you know. We, of course, did the hits from the first album, but we did a lot of songs from the new one and it worked with Clapton. I personally love this record because of what you just said. The the sound hardened up a little bit. Yeah. It became a, a more of a of a tougher sound, still maintaining the great vocals and the harmony in the songwriting. And it this album contains my favorite player song of all time, which is Joining the Dance. If you could tell us a little bit about that. Oh my God, you are a deep digger, aren't you? I don't. <laughs> I told you it was my favorite the, album. So. <laughs> that's probably the song I can remember least. <laughs> really? Oh my God, it's a great song. Listen to it. <laughs> I can almost remember it. Just, I don't know what to tell you about it. <laughs> I, can, I guess I could tell you more about it. <laughs> you probably could when it comes to that song. Yeah. Yeah. This, I, every song on this album i absolutely cherished i i thought it, it was a little bit ahead of its time because it was dipping the toe in the waters of what the doobie brothers had just started to do maybe a, a, barely a year before and well, we were trying right and, and it 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 was something that became a sound going into the 80s that that type of a lot of the keyboard sounds on this album a lot of the vocal phrasings and the harmonies it was very early doobie brothers in which you know you know going into the early 80s everybody wanted to sound like that right so it was right, kind of a, yeah. I, I thought at the time it was a cutting edge a, a bit ahead of its time and a huge jump from your first album i thought i liked it too but a lot of people you know you know so where's the next baby come back you right. know, a lot of people wanted the blue eyed soul and, but you know, we had to do that tour and we had to harden up and it worked. So certainly did. Oh yeah. No, for sure. I, I love the album too myself. I mean, and that carried through to, I think the next tour we did was heart. We did the dog and butterfly tour and another arena tour. So, you know, the band wasn't really a band for that many years, but we, all we did was like the arena tours, you know, the, the huge, when that was the thing. And uh, it was pretty amazing. Now, after Danger Zone, um, J.C. Crowley leaves the band. Uh, yep. Gabe, Gabe Katona comes in on keyboards. And you release the um, Room With A View album. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was um, it was basically me. Because, you know, Crowley, used, Crowley and I used to write together. So we did, you know, we shared the vocals and we shared the uh, the writing and everything. But this this then player became my band and I wrote all the songs on that album and uh, produced it and um not many people know about that album actually there's a couple of songs on there that i really like but uh not much happened with that album that was also a little bit a bit harder edged i think yeah well Don't i, I actually was yeah i was actually talking with tom and and we actually did um one of our episodes that we're going to kind of probably marry this together when we post the interview with you but tom and i did a, a discography discussion on player and uh, we talked about this album, and I thought that the album and had a little bit of like almost like a, a I don't want to say new wave sound, but like you know, especially in the first song, uh, the the room with the view title track, uh, it almost to me had a little bit of that Cars sort of sound. To yeah, it. well, I think that was just the style at the time, and you know, I was always trying to stay current. Probably a mistake, but you know, I, I did in those days. I don't care anymore. I just write what comes out of me. But at the time, I would always try to be current with what was the style. And uh, that's what it, that produced out of me. Right. Well, now, I like it. 
Oh, I, I do too. I, I mean, Tom and I talk about this album, and, and actually, it's funny because the the following album, which was in 1981, uh, you released the Spies of Life album, and that's actually that's, probably my favorite album. That's a good album. Can you yeah, tell I us was, a little uh, bit about that? <laughs> well, yeah. Um, Dennis Lambert and I used to write a lot of songs together. Dennis produced Baby Come Back with Brian Potter, and you know he had a lot of hits himself. They wrote songs for Glenn Campbell, The Four Tops, Temptations. I wrote a bunch of songs with Dennis for The Temptations. Um, but Dennis gave me a call and he said, uh, RCA wants you to do a player album. And there was no player, at, you know, pretty much at that stage. And um, so he produced it and we wrote songs to get Dennis and I wrote the songs together for the most part. And um, we did all the TV shows. I was actually living up in the mountains. I did the Jeremiah Johnson thing. I'd, I'd just gotten separated and I went up to the mountains behind LA and bought a cabin in the woods and chopped chopped wood, got a dog, grew a beard. That <laughs> you know, that's actually when I got the call from Dennis and said, come on down, you know, we're going to cut an album. And so I, I went down, spent a lot of time at Dennis's house and uh, he had a studio in his house. And um, that was Spies of Life. We wrote most of those songs together. There's some good songs on there. There's some really good songs. I, I, a lot of good songs, actually, that I, I, like I said, it is my favorite album for sure. Now, I wanted to go a little bit ahead because you said, you know, at that point there was no player. You came back, you did the Spies of Life album, and then, yeah. then it just kind of ended, right? Yeah, there was a period. Well, what happened to me is I got a lot of... Uh, I, I was always, I got my studio, my studio together and I started doing film and TV and I, I had a good run there for about 15 years. I, I did a lot of movies and, um, and TV and became pretty much a songwriter instead of a performing musician. And I would, you know, I had all the stuff. I would get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, turn the drum machine on. In the middle of that run, you know, I was I, I was at the stage where I was no longer part of the cattle call for songs for movies. You know, I would actually get a call from the uh, the music guy from the movie, and they'd say, "I'm going to send you a video. I want you to write a song for this scene." And I would do that, and nine times out of ten, I just I just got the song in the movie. So that's what happened to me during that period. And I was doing great. I was making a lot of money and I was getting a lot of movies and I was quite happy, you know, it's getting fat. <laughs> and, uh, and then out of the blue, I'm sure this is what you're going to ask me next. My manager also managed Little River Band. And uh, I get this call and I haven't been on stage in like 15 years. And he says, Graham Goble just left Little River Band. They've got a new album out and they're shooting a video. Would you mind standing in for him in the video? They're shooting in, in L.A. So I went down there. I really didn't know the guys, and I just stood in for the video. And about a week later, I get this call from um, Steve Housden, and he says, do you want to do a tour of Australia with us and be in the band? And I really had to think about this because I didn't really want to play live again, and I had my business going on with my film stuff, and uh, it got the better of me. I just uh, I thought that might be a lot of fun. So, you know, I pulled out my leather pants and couldn't fit into them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just went off to Australia and I ended up in the band for, for some eight years, I think. Toured with them for eight years. I wanted to ask you, Peter, just to clear up some confusion on my part. Did you ever do any recording with them or you just did the tour with them? No, I didn't record. I wrote about, uh, I wrote two singles for them. None of the big ones. They, they'd already had their day by then, you know. But um, 
I wrote about three singles for them. And um, there was a thing in Little River Band. It, after they did Get Lucky, which is the album I joined them for, um, they didn't really come up with anything after that. And it was very competitive. The band is very competitive. And I, I found it hard to actually... I wrote a couple of things with Glenn before he left, Glenn Shorrock. And um, during the period, I, I, just, it, I found it hard to get anything through. Um, I don't really know how to how to put that, but uh, it was tough to get any of the songs recorded. You know, well, well, Wayne Nelson is kind of like the the mover and the shaker in the band. I, I'm well, he is now. Yeah. yeah, he's the lead singer now. Right. Then he was the bass player. Right. And um, you know, but but everybody was very competitive. And you know, I'd I'd write something that I think was real good, and and certain people would go, eh, you know, right. <laughs> and uh, enough of that, you know. So, so how did uh, the big player? Uh, CD in '95 come about the the comeback. Which one? Uh, the album. Well, it, it came, actually came out under a couple of different names, right? Uh, oh, I know what you're talking about, yeah. but you're skipping skipping over my solo album, well, which I did while, yeah, while well, I was I, in. Okay, I was going to do the solo after, but yeah, okay, we'll do, we'll do the solo <laughs> and then we'll go into the because the, well, the solo is, is something. That it, yeah, that was. Me it's a timeline thing. Yeah, we have a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of questions on that too. Well, I actually, before we even get to that, uh, Peter, if I could, because I, I have to geek out a little bit here. Um, <laughs> we did it before with some of the earlier stuff, but I recently found out that you released a single in 1984 uh, as a solo artist. Uh, it was a, a song called "The Motivation," and there was a B side of I think "Slip of the Tongue" was the song. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I'm very curious. That wasn't on anything else. I don't remember much about it. I had a friend called Lenny Macaluso, who's a songwriter, and we wrote that together. And uh, he got he got a one time singles deal on it. Okay. And uh, and that's all I really remember. I, I've got this. I've got the single cover somewhere. It's got a photo of me with a raincoat on or something, as I remember. And that's pretty much all that happened with that. Okay. I had to ask because I, I, I saw it and I, I ordered it and I'm waiting for it to come from France. And <laughs> <Good> uh, <luck. laughs> I said, I, I got to ask about this because I don't think those songs ever appeared anywhere else on anything that you've ever done. Well, I've got a lot of songs that never appeared anywhere, you know. <laughs> <laughs> as far as the solo album is concerned, uh, who, who convinced you to do Brother Louie? Uh, I always liked it. And uh, I used to, you know, jamming around on my guitar, I, I used to like to sing it. And I thought it sounded pretty good on it. And, and Dennis loved it. And I suggested it. And Dennis pr produced half of that album. And I produced the other half um, with a guy called David Holman. So it was like a half-half effort. And one of those songs Dennis did was Brother Louie, which I like very much. I actually think that's one of my best works, that album. Yeah. I think it's a real good album. Yeah, I agree with that totally. Um, I, and you had some great people playing on that album too. I mean, everything from Michael Thompson to Dave Amato. Uh, Everybody. Dan Huff even. And uh, yep. I mean, you even had uh, uh, Chris Fraser who played with Foreigner a little bit later That's on. That's right, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, he even had Joey Cathcart, uh, God Rest His Soul, from, from the band That's Nelson. Right. So, That's right. Yeah, that, that was a great <laughs> album. I was just listening to it today. <laughs> What motivated yeah. this record happening? Because at, at, at this time, it's like early 90s. We're kind of shifting out of melodic rock. And I remember when it, it came out, it was uh, met with a lot of anticipation because you hadn't been heard from for a while. And how did this come off the ground in the early 90s? It was brought, the idea was brought to me by my manager, Paul Palmer, 
And um, I'd only been in Little River Band a few years because, as you said, the, I joined Little River Band in 89 and we did that album in like 1991. So I was touring America and Australia and New Zealand with Little River Band when that album came out. And uh, what happened was there was a film everybody thought was going to be huge called Major League. And they, they wanted a rocker for the soundtrack. And strangely enough, Michael Lloyd who I replaced in Skyband, Friends Skyband, many, many years before, was the producer. And we did a song. And uh, my Curb heard it. And he said, finish this up. We'll put this out on Curb. And, uh, and so the album came out on came out on Curb, right? Yes. Curb. Curb record. That record yeah. actually came out like on about three or four different labels. But the initial one was Curb, yes. Uh, I think they don't, that one only came out on Curb. You're, you're thinking of the next player album, I think. No, it came out because I'm, I'm sitting here as, as I'm talking mm -hmm. to you. It came out on a, on a label called Long Run. Oh, I know what that is. Yeah, that was my... Um... That was my manager's label name, so it's actually all part of the same thing. Okay, it wasn't yeah. really really seen. And yeah. it had an extra so had a song that wasn't listed on the album, but it had an eleventh song that wasn't yeah. on the curb pressing. That was my, uh, my Marvin Hamlish collaboration. So the album was actually I, I think that was only on the Japanese version, wasn't it? It, it was. It was on yeah. the Japanese version, but then they put it they put it as a non listed mystery track on the long run version. Uh oh. You, you had go. to run okay. through the tenth song and then it would play on the eleventh yeah. song, but it wasn't listed on the C D. For whatever reason. Well it wasn't on the original C D. Right. No. And it wasn't on the but, original C D. And it also came out later on a label called AOR Heaven with yes, about five bonus right. tracks. That's right. Uh, well, well, I can get to that, but the, but this particular song you're talking about, um, I was in Santa Barbara with my wife. It was her birthday. We'd been out the night before, you know, had a great time. Eight o'clock in the morning, the hotel phone rings. It's my manager, Paul Palmer, and he said, you need to get back here right now. You need to pick Marvin Hamlish up at his hotel and <laughs> go up to David Holman's studio and work on this song with Marvin Hamlish. And I'm like, oh, and I've got a hangover and everything, you know. And so I, my wife and I scream back to L.A. and we go pick up Marvin Hamlish and we take him up to the studio. And he's a great guy. He's really funny, really nice guy, you know. And for everything he's done, I mean, God, ridiculous stuff. And um, so we sat down and there was an existing song that the film people, I don't know what the company was, but it was the movie uh, Frankie and Johnny. You know who that was? Yeah, I remember the yeah. movie, yeah. They had this song that the film company loved. They wanted a movie and uh, they didn't like the lyrics or the melody. So I sat down and I came up with a, a, a lyric and a melody with Marvin. And uh, he played keyboards on it and I sang it. And they brought in this girl, Jeanette Klinger. It was a duet and it was in the movie. And it's a pretty song, very pretty ballad. Now, now we can comfortably get into the uh, the I guess the reformation of player or the rebirth of player. Um, ninety five, ninety six. Uh, you put out in Japan initially. Uh, the album came out under the name Electric Shadow, and That's then right. it came out the year, following year in the U.S. Um, as uh, uh, Lost in Reality. Yes, same and, album. <laughs> yeah, you know how how did that all come about? The I mean, it's many years since Player, the name, the band Player had done anything. How did that all come about? Well, uh, you know, I'm I was always writing in those days, and I always had a stack of good songs sitting there doing nothing. And um, got back together with Ron Moss, and um, I wrote and produced the album, 
brought Ron back in. He, Ron was still in the soap opera at the time. Right. And um, it was started off, I was going to produce a, so, a solo album for him. Just an idea I had because he was known on the soap. And as it went along, it became easier, since I was pretty much singing all of it anyway, to get a record deal as player. So I thought, why don't we just do it as player and put it out? And Japan, I don't remember the name of the label. Do you know? Uh, yes, because I have the Japanese CD sitting right in front of me. It was Well, Poly- there you go. <laughs> Polystar. Polystar, that's it, yeah. <laughs> and so they bought it and they put it out. And um, strangely enough, I was on tour again with Little River Band and we were in Chicago and there was this guy on the bus and I can't remember his name because I'm old and vague now, but uh, whoever he was, he had this label called uh, uh, River North in Chicago, out of Chicago. And I was just talking to him and I gave him the Electric Shadow album. And this is how these things happen, you know, it's crazy. You know, a week later I get this call and he said, we want to put this out. Can you, can we change it up a little bit and maybe add something? And, and so it came out as... Lost in Reality. How was it going? Lost yeah, in reality. reality. See, Peter, you, yeah. you, you started off and I'll you fit, start the sentences and I'll finish them. <laughs> it's too, well, that's I, how I need, two old guys yeah. work together. Well, I need my own bio in front of me, you know. To re- <laughs> I, I did an interview with this guy not too long ago and it was just a short interview and you can, you can watch it on uh, YouTube. And he, he had this little quiz where he plays these songs from your past. He does it with all the artists. And he plays you these songs from way in your past, and you have to guess what they are. And I got none. <laughs> none of them. <laughs> and it's on YouTube. It's, it's pathetic. I couldn't. I, I, I know no, this I song. I have to look for that. Yeah. What is this song? What is this song? I know. This I've song that I wrote, before. I have no idea. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Too many songs. So, what you, yeah, was, so I actually have the Japanese press because when it came out, um, I remember seeing in Burn magazine, which was the, uh, the, the the big Japanese magazine at the time. Yeah, they gave it a big um, a big push. They gave it a big review and a big yeah. push. Even though I couldn't read the review, I know they gave it a a high uh, marking. And and I bought it when it came out. And then it came out on this Lost in Reality. And there were a couple of different tracks. I, I think there were a couple of tracks that weren't on the Japanese that were on the yeah. Lost in Reality. I guess as yeah. a, as, a, as a marketing uh, tool to to sell the record in the states for all the people that like myself that already bought it in Japan, uh, you right. wanted extra tracks. I'm assuming. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> so my wife is my wife is fiddling with my earphones. Hang on a sec. Okay. Okay. All right. We're good. We're good, okay. we're good again. <laughs> <laughs> so. So now we uh, we kick back, uh, or actually we go ahead uh, seventeen years, right? Uh, Another player album comes out in 2013. What, what were you doing in between? Well, I was in a shipwreck and I was lost on an island in the Pacific. <laughs> and I had a, a basketball called Wilson that was floating around, my only friend, you know. Then I learned to catch fish and then I was rescued and I came back. Uh, and then at that point, was that when you kind of came up with the uh, the Yacht Rock term? I didn't come up with <laughs> Yacht Rock. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Which, I wish right. I'd come up with Yacht Rock. I know. Do you want to get into Yacht Rock right now? Is that what you want to do? Oh, well, well, well let's talk about the uh, the album, uh, Too Many Reasons, and then we'll get into Yacht Rock. Okay. Um, what can you tell us about Too Many Reasons from 2013? That came out on Frontiers, uh, which was an Italian label. Um, bunch of songs. I got divorced just before that, and um, I was kind of living alone, and I had my studio set up in my place, and I, I wrote a whole bunch of songs and um, had them sitting there, 
And then I had this other idea to form a country band. I don't know what this came from. Called the Limey Cowboys. Okay. And I thought this is a great idea. I'm going to have all English guys. Everyone will be like scruffy and have tattoos. And the whole thing was to, to just be like a real rock and roll country band. And uh, the idea was like no threat to Nashville was going to be the name of the album. And I wrote this song called Baby Don't Come Back, a boot scooting country tune. And it's really good, actually. And a few people have heard it. But I wrote about six songs and I was really into this idea. And I was going to go shoot a video at this old ranch in Malibu. And uh, I had all these big ideas. And in the middle of all this, I get a call from from this record label in uh, in Italy. And uh, they said, we want to do a, a player, an actual player album, a real release, you know, the whole thing. And uh, so it took me totally out of that country thing. I went back to all those songs that I had sitting there, wrote another handful, put it all together. And that was too many reasons. Now, now correct me if I'm wrong, because Tom and I were... We're talking about this album when we were doing our discography discussion on Player. And we both kind of thought that there was a little bit of like a U2 sound to that. Is that something you would agree with or are we crazy? So to what song or what songs in particular? Well, I mean, even the, even the first song on the album, I thought had kind of a U2 sound to it. A really? Couple towards the middle. Yeah, like just almost like a poppier U2 sound in a way. You've never Inter heard that. You, you mean the, the album itself had a U2 overtone do you think yeah i thought a, a few songs for sure had that <laughs> that's you never heard that before no wow okay. <laughs> and, it, and it was not intentional i wish <laughs> but no no it's with me it's always it's whatever i've got around you know i gather the best of and then i add to and you know master everything to sound the same i, I don't really go at it i'm gonna make this album sound like you too you know yeah no i i, I don't think overall it wasn't you know like a U2 album or anything like that. I just thought no, a, few, a few songs had, had kind of, even the vocal feel to them had a little bit of like That's a, a great compliment. I'll take it. Okay, great. <laughs> well, well, now around that time, and we're going to talk about what we just talked about a minute ago, um, it was around that year, 2013, that you kind of got introduced into this whole yacht rock phenomenon, right? Yes. Uh, how did that all occur? How did that come about? Well, once again... Um, there wasn't a whole lot going on. I, I was back into my uh, writing mode, doing some TV and stuff again. And um, I was at a baseball, a kid's baseball game with my kid. And uh, I got a phone call out of the blue. And it was this guy called Peter Olson. And uh, he said, we are a band from Atlanta. We are a cover band. And we do all the 70s music. And we call ourselves Yacht Rock Review. Now, this is not the origin of Yacht Rock, but this is where I got it from, okay? Right. And so I'd never heard of it. And I, I said, Yacht what? <laughs> and, and he said, no, it's a movement that's going on. We, we are a, we're called Yacht Rock Review. And the 70s music that you are a big part of, meaning me, um, is being called Yacht Rock now by the kids. And it's becoming very popular. And we're doing these shows down here in Atlanta. And um, we've started to, instead of just doing all the songs ourselves, we're attracting big crowds and we're bringing some of the original artists down. Would you like to come to Atlanta and do a show with us? And I thought, that's a little weird. I don't know. And I thought about it and I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll go down and see what, what it's all about. And I got the shock of my life. I, I went down and um, Gary Wright was there and uh, Walter Egan and Ambrosia and Little River Band 
with the new version, you know, and they're all on this concert with these these guys you at Rock Review had put on this big concert. And I'm looking around and like there's thousands of people with sailors caps on and they're all drunk on their butts and they're singing along with the, the choruses and all the bands are doing their hits, you know, and I went out with Yacht Rock and Walter did and, and whoever else was on it and uh, Robbie Dupree, I think. And um, it was kind of like, uh, what's that thing they do in Germany where they all say, like the Oktoberfest. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy, just booze everywhere, people in sailor's caps. And I just remember thinking, you know, I mean, I'm big crowd, just huge crowd. And I just remember thinking, this is a movement. Something's going on here that I didn't know about, you know. And that was 12 years ago or something. Yeah. And I've, I've been touring every year. And, you know, I'm happy to do it. It's, it's actually great. It's like giving the 70s music a new lease of life. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm a but, big fan of it myself. And, uh, you know. But the real origin, I have to get this in. The real origin of it were four guys, mm-hmm. J.D. Reisner, Dave Lyons, Hunter Sturr, and Steve Huey. Yes. came up with a web series and it was kind of pretty it was pretty raggy but it was really funny yeah very campy and, but yeah. really funny and and it was a thing where they took the mickey out of the 70s artists like michael mcdonald and and uh, kenny loggins and everybody yeah. yeah and it's very funny but yeah. i hadn't seen it at the time you know i, I looked at it later yeah no i've watched and, them uh, they're great and that's that's where it all came from and they they coined the phrase yacht rock and and uh, of course uh, jimmy Fallon picked up on it and he started showing it on his show and then he really got into Yacht Rock and and I think that's where the whole thing started stirring from you know. Peter before we get any further with rot, Yacht Rock I, there were a couple of things I wanted to ask you about um, the your solo record that was reissued on AOR Heaven. Years oh yeah yeah. Fact. yeah we didn't touch on that there was a whole bunch of really strong bonus tracks that were added to that where did those songs were they from that session or were they from something nope. else? They were, well, you know, as I said, I always have songs. I'm always writing and I always have songs sitting on the shelf. And that guy who put that out on that label. George Siegel, um, I believe. Is George Siegel, yeah. yeah. He, he said, I, he, actually, he'd, released, he'd re-released it before, once. And he said, I want to do it again with a bunch of new songs. What do you have sitting around? And I said, I've got, a, I've got some demos that are kind of a little more rock that would fit with these others here. And he, I sent them to him, and the next minute they were on an album and out. <laughs> yeah. And they were, they were literally just demos that I had. Some of them weren't even finished. Okay. But for for some weird reason, in the end, it all works. You know, they they kind of go together. But uh, well, that's how. Uh, you know, people that collect this music, like like Mark and myself, they they love bonus tracks. Sometimes even if they're yeah. demos, you know. And I had always wondered were they from that session or from something something. Yeah, there's sessions from my bathroom. <laughs> I, I could. I could. And the other question I had for you, going back to uh, Too Many Reasons, one of my favorite songs on that album, oddly enough, was left off the album and was added as a Japanese bonus track called Walk That Walk. Did you yeah. leave that off because you didn't think it was that strong or did they want no, that? No, I, I thought it was too heavy. For, uh, for that's the, probably uh, why the I like it because I'm at, at heart me, I'm a, a heavy metal yeah, guy. <laughs> well, me too. You know, <laughs> you know I, I, I've been in heavier bands. But um, I had that song. I wrote it for a movie, and it never got in the movie. I don't even remember what movie it was. Yeah, but it, but it, they said we want a real heavy. Actually, I know what it was. It was uh, it was the 
movie that ended up being called Rockstar. Oh, interesting. With, yeah, with Mark uh, Wahlberg. Wahlberg. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Because I love that song, yeah. Walk That Walk. And it was, I was like, why did they leave this? You know, I have the Japanese CD, so it's not like I'm missing out. But Well, it was well like, I ended up with three of my songs are in that movie, but this one didn't get in. Mm, interesting. I, I wrote about 10 songs for that movie, and three of them got in, seven of them didn't. That was one of them. So again, that was just sitting on my shelf, and I wanted to get it on something. And so when the Japanese you know, wanted to add something. I said, try this one. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's, that's interesting because that's why I asked you because I always liked that song a lot. I like it too. Yeah. And, I like and, it too. And it is it is heavier than anything else on, on the actual record. Yeah, it's kind of foreigner-ish, you know. Yes, exactly. And my, my final question before I'll turn you back to Mark is uh, we were recently viewing some video on, on YouTube where I, I saw you playing, I, I think it was around 2014 with Frankie Benali and I forget who the guitar player, the lead guitar player, who was really, really good too. How did oh, you he's great. get hooked? Who was the guitar? Do you, could you refresh my memory? Yes, now? yes. He's still with me now. His name is Rob Math and he's a monster. Rob Math, who actually, right, he yeah. plays with a band called Leatherwolf now. Also. Yes, he's a heavy man. Dude, yes, which is that's very I, interesting. Because, and I saw this you know, video, and I was like, Rob Math from Leatherwolf, Frankie Benali, who I Benally love, is a real heavy riot. drummer, did some of his yes. best work with Wasp. And I was like, this is a real interesting lineup with the, the two charter members of, of Player with these two metal guys. And I, and I really liked the way it came across. We only saw one or two songs that were up on YouTube. Well, you know, that that's a whole thing. I, I brought Rob into the band because... Uh, because he was a little heavier and we started playing live again and he he just gave it that kick mm -hmm, absolutely and the reason frankie is in that video is our drummer left us and we were we we had that gig we had to do it and frankie was a friend and he said i'll stand in you know for that one gig and god bless his soul you know he's dead now and uh that's the only gig he did with us and, and then he went back to quiet right for for a while you know but uh you know great guy but i nice i one. love that because I, I was looking at it saying wow i would have loved to seen peter take player in this direction because it's it had a lot of had a lot of balls to it well it did go in that direction just just not with frankie you know but but rob's been with me for god 15 years or something and he still is anything we might do as as peter beckett's player which is the way it is right now would have math uh, rub math in it oh know? that's but great truthfully I'm, I'm mainly these days i'm i'm playing by myself uh, that's not the same as playing with myself but i am <laughs> playing by myself um and i'll I, i've got a bunch of tours lined up right now which we can get into at the end of this you know but uh yeah so that was the frankie benelli thing so does Rob Matt still play when you play now? Is he yeah. with you? He is. Oh, Abs yeah. Absolutely. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't have anybody else. Yeah, no, he's tremendous. He's in Leatherwolf yeah. right now. He's the, the main yeah. lead guitarist in, in, in Leatherwolf. And, um, yeah. He was always in Leatherwolf. He, he's with me. He's in Leatherwolf. Right. He just he goes to Germany and he does those big metal uh, yes, exactly. concerts, you know? Yeah. <laughs> wow. So yeah. that's interesting because uh, you talked about, you said you have some big plans. Obviously, I mean, the last couple of years has been a wash for everybody. But what yeah. are, what are, what's in, on the horizon for Peter Beckett's player? Well, I've just started. I've actually, I got a handful of gigs and I, I play with Ambrosia a lot. That's my main thing right now is 
I, I, you know, it comes from doing these yacht rock things where everybody everybody plays together. You know, we have they have guests like Ambrosia will be a uh, a house band and they'll uh, invite like two or three guests, me being one of them, and um, and they do their hits and everything. They bring us out one by one. But um, I've been doing a lot of things with just them and myself. I go out and do four songs in the middle of their set, and that was going on before the uh, pandemic. Then the pandemic hit, and of course nothing happened for a while. But at the end of last year, I, I got a good handful of, of gigs in uh, with Ambrosia. We actually played New Jersey. Oh, really? For your information. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'd have to really fight to think of the name. It was a casino, and it was great. It was a great oh, okay. gig. And so then, of course, you know, the new thing happened, and uh, everybody's scared again, and gigs are getting canceled. But uh, I do have two tours lined up, two full-on tours. Um, one is a Yacht Rock tour. Uh, this should start like early summer and go through the fall. It's uh, Firefall, uh, not Ambrosia, Firefall, Orleans, uh, Walter Egan, Pablo Cruz, and me. And it's full-on thing. It's a Yacht Rock tour. I think it's called Sail, Sail On, the Sail On tour. And they're putting that together right now. That's going to happen. Uh, you know, that's if nothing else goes crazy with the pandemic. Right. But um, right now it's looking good. So wow. I've got that. And I've also got a, a like a secondary smaller tour with, with Orleans and Walter Egan, where Orleans is the backup band. And they do their hits and everything. And Walter and I come out and do ours. So uh, that's what's that's what's this year. That's what's coming this year. Nice. Well, I mean, I can't let you go. Um, Tom and I were just talking about this. Before we uh, we let you go, I wanted to ask you about Yacht Rock Wine, if you could tell yes. us a little bit about that. Well, that's just m my wife and I had an idea in somewhere in the middle of all these Yacht Rock tours we were doing every year. And we always wanted to get into wine. And we're sitting around and we said, Yacht Rock Wines. Wow, that's a great thing. I wonder if we could get the uh, trademark for it, you know. And we actually had a good friend who's our lawyer uh, who has his own whole thing of wines going on called Vampire Wines. And, and he's already in business. He's, you know, he's all set up. And um, we took it to him and he said, I'd be interested in getting part of this, you know. So he is now our partner. And we started it rolling. We, we got the trademark for Yacht Rock Wines. And uh, last year we, we started, we have a couple of really good champagnes this was a labor of love we went around everywhere looking at you know try, trying to find the right the right stuff to put out and um so far we've got two real champagnes made in the method champagne was way which is how they do it in champagne france you know mm -hmm. and um we can't call it champagne because it's not from from there but uh it's really good stuff we have a uh we have a blanc de noir and a pink sparkling one. Yeah. So we have a uh, we have two two champagnes. One is a Blanc de Noir, and one is a Grenache Rosé, and they're both brut, and they're both very tasty and uh, great buzz. Excellent. I'm a Cabernet and Zinfandel guy. So. We're coming. We're coming with a cab in about four months. We okay. should be putting out it. It's called the Captain's Red, uh, and um, yeah, it's all going to be yacht rock themed. Obviously, it's yacht rock wine. Right. And then after that, there'll be a uh, and, and the whole idea of it that we had was to have just a general line of stuff. the The champagne is called Baby Come Back Bubbly. Yeah. Mm, okay. Nice. Uh, so everything we put out in the artist line 
is going to be devoted to an artist. Like, for instance, I'm talking to Glenn Sharrock right now about putting out a um, Cool Change Chardonnay. We're talking to Al Stewart about putting out a Year of the Cab. Oh, nice. <laughs> I like that. And if we could get Michael McDonald, which would be great, we're going to have a uh, uh, What a Fool Believe Zin. <laughs> That's my favorite. Red you Zin. See, and so there will be a, a collectible bottles devoted to the artists. Nice. Who, the be best record and the label, where we can, would be ideally the album cover. Wow. But that's a lot of licensing. I'm a big wine there, drinker, so, so I'm, I'm loving this conversation. Dude, I'm drinking as I'm talking so to I, you. So am I. <laughs> Mark's the only dry one here. <laughs> well, actually, I, uh, I have a very dear friend, longtime friend, that his father actually has been making wine for about the last 10 years or so. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I've been very involved in the process along the way with him. And uh, it's everything from, you know, a, a company where you go and you, you crush the grapes. You, you know, if you have a family recipe you want to do, they, they follow along with that. And I go through the whole process. So I've been doing that yeah, for about yeah. 10 years. And I, I just find Good the whole process you. very interesting. Well, now, believe now it or I not. I just got to get him to drink it. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, you don't drink, do you? That's funny. Uh, yeah, a little bit here and there, but, you know. <laughs> well, you know what? Um, this uh, our lawyer partner, Michael, uh, who has vampire wines, he went to uh, Transylvania and got the beginning grapes oh. and planted the grapes. That's very know? cool. Yeah. And, and he's, all his wines are like blood of the grape. And nice. it's all like, you know. Did it similar to what we're doing, but it, vampire theme, you know, instead of you know, when will that cab be available? Um, we've, we've picked the cab and um, we've g designed the label, but we're waiting for we have to get this sh the shipment in order. You, you know how that works, yeah. We, we have we have to buy a whole lot, you know, right? And uh, and bottle it and the whole thing. So, um, we'll we've got all that, that. yeah. I'll, I'll let you know. It should be when is that going to be like three months, something, babe? March, she says. Nice. Oh, okay. That's she's March she's my memory. Yeah, she's my memory, by the way. Well, if we do another interview, we'll have both of you on. There you go. <laughs> well, it would it would help. She could fill in the gap. You know? <laughs> well, um, Peter, this was a great interview. Uh, Tom and I had a lot of fun with this. Um, basically, everybody who's out there who wants to know, uh, they can follow along. Is it uh, player-theband.com that they can follow yeah, along? It, the website's uh, peterbeckett-player.com. and. Okay player-theband.com but then there's two Facebook sites there's a uh, Peter Beckett Voice of Player Peter Beckett's Player and yachtrockwines.com yes definitely we'll plug all those on our all our socials and uh, again thank you very much for uh, the interview you can get back to watching the football game now and uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much thanks Peter thanks guys really appreciate it take care bye, take bye, care bye, -bye. bye, -bye.